BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, December 11th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com or on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Mac Weldon. Indre, do you know every year I get some ter- I get the same terrible gift at Christmas? Well, and do you know every year I have no idea what to get the men in my life. Yeah, I get terrible socks and underwear every Christmas, and I just want something simple that's going to work and be comfortable. Enter Mac Weldon. They make holiday packs that are gifts every man needs. And it's smart underwear for smart people, which I hope I'm part of. Maybe. Uh, The underwear looks great. It's made out of simple premium fabrics, and it's no fuss, no muss. Uh, And all of our listeners can go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code MINDS. That's promo code M-I-N-D-S for 20% off your total order at MacWeldon.com. And this episode is sponsored by Loot Crate, the subscription box for the geek, gamer, and or nerd in all of us. For less than 20 bucks a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com slash minds and enter code M-I-N-D-S, minds, to save $3 on any new subscription. This year, thus far, there have been crates featuring some exclusive items from Star Wars and Voltron, as well as some epic geek apparel from your favorite shows. A crate all about strategy games, a crate all about covert operations, and there's only more awesomeness to come. Remember, you only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com minds and enter code minds to save $3 on your new subscription today. And this episode is sponsored by Zevia. Zevia is a zero-calorie, naturally sweetened soda that's clearly different. It has no sugar and no calories, but still it's somehow delicious. Zevia is available in 50 different flavors like cream soda, black cherry, cola, ginger ale, or even tonic water. Always zero calories. Zevia makes amazing guilt-free cocktails, whiskey and ginger, gin and tonic, and so many more. Plus, Zevia is giving away thousands of free six-packs. To check it out, go to zevia.com slash podcast. That's Z-E-V-I-A dot com slash podcast. 
So, tis the season for holiday parties, which includes lots of awesome food. My mom was just visiting, and she completely stacked my freezer with cookies, which I'm really excited about. It's a time of year in which we, at least most of us, or many of us, like to indulge in our culinary options. And I've been thinking a lot about what it is that draws us to certain foods, and why, if we're just addicted to, you know, or we're just seeking out sugar, fat, and, you know, that kind of good stuff, why a spoonful of sugar really isn't that satisfying? I mean, who really goes out there and just tries to get a spoonful of fat? (laughs) Do you, Kishore? (laughs) That sounds horrible. (laughs) That sounds terrible, right? I mean, even butter, which I totally love on toast, I would never just put in my mouth by the spoonful. (laughs) So... I got to thinking about what it is that makes the combination of sugar, fat, with other things so delectable. So to answer that question, I interviewed Mark Schatzker. Mark Schatzker is an award-winning food journalist, and his last book, not that we're going to talk about today, was called Steak, One Man's Search for the World's Tastiest Piece of Beef, which sounds like it's going to be next on my reading list. Um, But his latest book is called The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, among other publications, and he's a radio columnist for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC. The Dorito Effect? Is this about pot smoking and cravings? Uh, not entirely. Uh, so it's the Dorito Effect, a surprising new truth about food and flavor. And in it, he discusses the fact that as our agricultural processes have made certain produce, especially, and chicken, for one, uh, as, as well as other meats, less palatable, less interesting in terms of the flavor palette, we've also engineered ways of making food more flavorful artificially. So that is, of course, the Dorito, right? I mean, it's like amazingly tasty, but it has nothing to do with anything that it's sort of based on, right? So Schatzker's feeling is that not that, you know, we have to really worry about how evolution has primed us to search for sugar and fat, but rather how flavor influences our food choices and that flavor has fundamentally changed in the last 50 years, which is one reason why we might be, you know, enduring this obesity epidemic. So that's our interview for today. But before we get there, I wanted to talk a little bit about some science in the news. So Kishore, what's on your mind? There's no easy way to transition from flavor to what I'm about to talk about, but it may be one of the more important stories we've covered in a while. There is a antibiotic called colistin. Have you ever heard of it? No. That's probably a good thing because it is the what's considered a last defense uh, antibiotic. It, it was developed in the 1950s, and it's largely used in sort of rare cases. It's a last-ditch effort kind of antibiotic. Uh, So enter the problem, and this is going to be a little bit terrifying. So researchers have been studying antibiotic resistance for a number of years, and they have now discovered colistin resistance, uh, particularly in pigs in China. Now, I think the natural question is, uh, why (laughs) is there resistance to the antibiotic that's not used very often? Uh, Well, it turns out that it is used a lot more often than we probably care to admit. Uh, Specifically, what are the what what is the bacteria that is being fought with this antibiotic? 
uh, there's a number of different bacteria that um, uh, that are fought with it. Most commonly, uh, E. coli. But the use that is really driving concern is the agricultural use. It's being used mostly to beef up pigs, and uh, most of that use is happening in China. And the Part of the problem is economic. Colistin, is, since it was developed in the 50s, is pretty cheap at this point. So farmers, especially uh, across the world, and it's not just China, but in India, in, in the Netherlands, are using this in agricultural feed for pigs. So researchers have discovered a particular gene called MCR1 that uh, drives the resistance. And here's the really scary part. So here's what the sampling indicated. In 78 of 50, 523 samples of raw pork and chicken meat, they found the gene. Okay, we can kind of expect that if the resistance is happening in, uh, in pigs, that it's going to show up in, in the meat. 166 of 800 Ford pigs showed this resistant gene in slaughterhouses themselves. Again, not surprising. But here's the doozy. 16 of 1,300 samples from hospital patients with infections had this gene present. That's 1%. Uh, but that, what that really means is that this gene is transmissible, and it's coming into human patients. And not just coming into human patients, but it's human patients that are ha have infections. So wait, you mean the bacteria with this gene. You don't mean that the humans themselves had this gene in their DNA, which made them... More susceptible? Correct. Right. Correct. But that transmission is a big problem because it can be perceived as indicative of potential spread of, of this resistance to other locations. And already we're seeing the resistance cross from continent to continent at this point, uh, which opens up all sorts of concerns. Uh, really, the, the story here is that if we don't really address the agricultural use of antibiotics in the context of resistance, we'll never be able to get a handle on this problem. And we're starting to now lose even some of our most rarely used uh, antibiotics uh, to resistance. And we don't really have many more coming down the pipe. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a really scary problem when you stop to think about it. It used to be that we had many more drug companies that were interested in creating antibiotics because there was a bigger market for it. But now, if an antibiotic comes onto the market, it costs a billion dollars to, you know, to, to produce, and it's only going to be around for 11 months or 13 months or, or a year before there are, before the bacteria develop a resistance to it. All of a sudden, the financial model stops making sense. And, you know, that seems to be one of the drivers for why we have fewer and fewer antibiotics being developed um, by big pharma. But it also made me wonder whether, you know, because bacteria evolve so rapidly, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons they can develop resistance in what seems like a very short time in our life lifespan. But in the lifespan of a bacterium, you know, it's actually many, many generations. So, you know, in some ways, I love bacteria because they show us evolution in action in a, in a time scale that we can actually experience as human beings. Um, 
But I was listening to, I think it was a Radiolab episode about um, these two women, uh, one who was a historian that really loved to get into um, microbiology and one who was a microbiologist who really loved history. <laughs> and they got together and they, they, they put together this concoction, this recipe from this old English kind of manual by this um, old English uh, uh healer named Bald Leecher, which is a great name. Um, but anyway, they put together, they, they created this cocktail and they actually managed to produce something that ca like caused the death of like 95% of staph bacteria that they were applying it to, which apparently is maybe what it was designed for. And, and the sort of conclusion at the end of the podcast episode was that, look, maybe the bacteria developed a resistance to this particular concoction in the Middle Ages when this book was first used. And now we have a completely new generation, you know, that's evolved in a different way of bacteria that can, again, be fought with this particular um, concoction. So it makes me wonder if there aren't clues, even in Chinese medicine, that maybe we can find um, antibiotics that worked 2,000 years ago um, that maybe will work again. That story that you're referencing has been written about pretty extensively uh, since it first broke because they even talked about the ways that this concoction was made, like the pots that it was brewed in, if you will, as having an uh, impact. And I think there's some um, issues with some of the work on it now um, that have thrown some of the, the credibility of, of how reproducible something like this would be. Uh, going forward with this particular concoction brew. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't other remedies that can be uh, brought from the past, but I also I want to limit the, the thought that we can have some, you know, ancient cures for modern antibiotic resistance as a whole new area of research. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think that it might be, I, I don't know, it, I agree with you that this, that particular... Um, concoction is not going to be, you know, a panacea. It's not going to be the next billion dollar drug. But I also want to be, if we're coming into an era where big pharma is no longer quite as willing to synthesize or, or you know, start from scratch, maybe there are some clues um, that we can that we can get, but maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. I I'm encourage, not a microbiologist. <laughs> I encourage our listeners who really want to know more about uh, antibiotic resistance to read more from Marin McKenna, who blogs at National Geographic and a number of other outlets, who's probably the foremost journalist uh, covering this issue. And she's been covering it for the better part of, you know, almost two decades. And she features prominently in the Radio Lab episode. So you can also listen to that episode as a primer. With that, let's take a short break. And we'll be back with my interview with Mark Schatzker. Andre, one of the hardest things I have to do is come home from work and figure out what to eat. And not just what to eat for myself, but what to what can I make for my wife and son that's going to be nutritious, healthy, and but most importantly, quick. Yep, it's a conundrum. It's a huge problem and one that I don't have a good solution for because trying to go to the grocery store after work is the bane of my existence. Long lines, I just want to come up with a way to eliminate all of that, that I can just toss ingredients together and eliminate all of those trips and wasted time. Enter Home Chef. Home Chef is sponsoring this episode and they have an exciting offer to get you ready to cook meals delivered directly to your doorstep. 
Cook dinner in about 30 minutes with step-by-step recipe cards, which is important for a dullard like me that can't cook or the damn, with whole new members, uh, menus published every week. They have items like sirloin steak with shisito pepper skewers, jerk chicken, and brown sugar plantains. Oh, that sounds good. I should not be doing this episode right before dinner time because my mouth is salivating. Each meal is under $10, so go ahead and give Home Chef a try. Go to homechef.com and use coupon code MINDS for a free dinner for two with your first purchase. That's homechef.com, code MINDS. This episode is also sponsored by Zevia. Zevia is the zero-calorie, naturally sweetened soda that's clearly different. It has no sugar and no calories, but it is still somehow really delicious. Zevia is available in 15 different flavors like cream soda, black cherry, cola, ginger ale, or even tonic water. Always zero calories, Zevia makes amazing guilt-free cocktails. Who needs to be guilty about cocktails? Anyway, whiskey and ginger, gin and tonic, and so many more. Plus, Zevia is giving away thousands of free six-packs. To check it out, go to zevia.com slash podcast. That's Z-E-V-I-A dot com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? Then this is the subscription box for you and me, apparently. For less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com minds and enter code minds to save $3 off any new subscription. Not that long ago, and to depending on where you live, not so far away, Loot Crate blasted off into a voyage across the galaxy, searching the far reaches of space to find universally awesome gear. Using December Star Wars The Force Awakens loot as a launch pad, we landed on some equally cosmic items from Halo 5 and more. With exclusive Funko Pop and exclusive shirt in this month's crate, this is the loot you're looking for. Basically, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present every month. You have until the 19th and 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to LootCrate.com Mines and enter code Mines to save $3 on your new subscription today. And I can't wait for the new Star Wars movie. <laughs> so too. I might need this Loot Crate. I just bought my tickets. Oh, yeah. I have to do that still. But yeah. Well, first I have to book a babysitter, but then then next step, ticket. If you haven't bought tickets yet, you're going to be seeing that sometime in January. I know. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Mark Schatzker. Hello. It's great to have you on the show. And I want to start out by talking a little bit about what people call the obesity epidemic. So this, you know, this increase in obesity that we see, at least in the US, if not much of the Western world, and where that comes from. Um, We've had Tracy Mann on a previous show talking about how diets don't work, and why they don't work. And you seem to have a different idea of where sort of the cause of the obesity epidemic might lie. Yeah, so it's interesting to talk about the obesity epidemic. A lot of researchers actually say it's a pandemic because it is spreading to other cultures, other nations, but it's very much that. It's been happening for decades and we can't stop it. In fact, it's kind of ironic in the sense that the harder we try, the worse things seem to get. So it's it's been a, kind of a, a, a policy failure. And why is that? Why can't we just stop eating? 
That's a great question. Why can't we stop eating? What, what's really interesting to me is that um, we really focused our efforts on nutrients a long time ago. It's out of fashion now, but we thought fat was our big problem. About 15 years ago, um, carbs went out of fashion, which is to say it became very fashionable to, to really have a hate on for carbs. Uh, lately, people are talking an awful lot about sugar, um, about high fructose corn syrup. So we're really talking about what do nutrients do to your body when they get in your stomach what do they do how does your body metabolize them and so forth these are valid questions i'm not one of those people who thinks all nutritionists are idiots or anything like that but the thing that's important to remember is that if we go back in time to the 1950s the 1960s before this this epidemic of weight gain set in the nutrients were all the same i mean uh, fat wasn't invented in 1978 and neither were carbs so What's changed is that we are consuming more of them and in different ratios. And to me, the question is why? And we talk about eating as though it's like a nutritional act. Like if you and I go out for dinner, we set out to eat 300 grams of carbs and 150 grams of protein. But of course, that's not how anyone eats. Eating is a behavior. And until we can understand, understand that behavior and what motivates it, I don't think we can really answer this question of why we're eating what we're eating. So that's what I set out to do in this book is understand obesity and its associated problems from the point of view of behavior. Why do we eat what we eat? Why do we want to eat what we eat? And, you know, it's really interesting you say um, that because in Silicon Valley here, there's a little bit of a, a trend for people to eat a kind of food substance that just provides all the nutrients. It's called Soylent. I've heard of Soylent. <laughs> and, yes, Soylent. Yeah. And, you know, it has it has virtually no flavor. I've tried it. It tastes a little bit like dough. And so you can kind of add whatever flavoring you want to it to make it more palatable. And people are swearing by this in terms of what it adds to their lifestyle because they don't have to think about food. They don't have to make decisions about food. They have all the nutrition they need. Um, and yet there's a huge backlash too, of course, because in, in the same part of the country, you have the you know foodie revolution and the slow food movement beginning and so forth. And people are really talking about that it's, it's you know, food isn't just about new, you know, getting nutrients into your body. It's a whole community thing. It's a, it's a, you know, a, a, a group thing and so forth. But, you know, ultimately, I think most of us for most of the meals that we have in our lives, it's really not about sitting down and, and sharing a great meal with people. It's about getting fed. And then if you can have one meal a day in which you share it with other people, that's great. But most of the time, we just we just want to get on with our day. And so why can't in that case, why don't we all just buy into Soylent? Um, well, we have no proof yet that Soylent's a good idea. My own view is that it plays into this kind of arrogant thinking that we know more about what our bodies need. That thinking hasn't worked. I think it's a great idea for a business plan, but I don't think there's any reason to think that, I mean, Soylent is the equivalent of what livestock nutritionists would call a total mixed ration. That's good if you want to feed cows or pigs and, and do it really cheaply, but that is not the way any animal, including humans, are designed to eat. I think it's a bad strategy. So how are we designed to eat? What are what are the ways in which we choose, maybe even unconsciously, the kinds of foods that we eat and and how is this related to the Dorito effect? Well, we so we eat because we want to eat, because very often we have a, a desire, sometimes even a craving. And flavor is the language of desire when it comes to food. Flavor is the one thing, funnily enough, we've never really talked about. If we ever do talk about it, we just sort of assume it's terrible. We're eating food that's delicious, you know, delicious, and that's what's killing us. But 
flavor is the language of of food. Um, when you think about food you want to eat, you think of it because it's delicious or perhaps it's really not delicious. Oh, I don't want to eat that. Um, it's really interesting when you look at the body's flavor system, it's your nose and mouth. It is from the point of view of DNA. If you, if you think of, you know, all your DNA as the instruction manual to make you the thickest chapter is on your flavor sensing equipment. So from an evolutionary point of view, it must be really important. Otherwise, what's it doing there? Yeah. So, yeah. So what, <laughs> what is it doing? Why there? is it there? <laughs> yeah. Why is it there? Well, when you look, the, the most interesting information comes from animal studies. Uh, for the basic reason, you can do things to animals that you can't ethically do to humans. And when you look at mammals, they use flavor as a system of finding nutrients that they need. So uh, there were some great experiments done at Utah State University by a guy named Fred Provenza. I'll give you an example of one of them. It's a great experiment involving sheep and phosphorus. We all know what sheep is or what sheep are. Phosphorus is an essential mineral, essential to sheep, also essential to humans. Um, if you don't eat your phosphorus, you're going to die. So what Fred Provenza did is he, he had a pen of sheep and he fed them a diet that was deficient in phosphorus. He wanted to induce a phosphorus deficiency. And when he done that, um, and he knew he did it because sheep start to do all sorts of strange things. They drink urine, they, they eat soil and stuff like that. Um, he did he fed them in a really interesting way. He, when they were phosphorus deficient, he would give them a coconut flavored feed, and then he'd put a tube into their stomachs and drench their stomachs with phosphorus. The next day, he would give them a maple flavored feed, and he'd put a tube in their stomachs and drench their stomachs with water. Now this sounds odd, it sounds almost cruel in a way, but he was trying to draw an association between the flavor of coconut and the nutrient phosphorus. So it was essential that they never tasted the phosphorus, they could only taste the coconut. And what he found um, after a certain amount of time had elapsed, that the sheep began to like the flavor of coconut. They associated it, their bodies did at least, with this nutrient that they needed. In fact, the more phosphorus deficient they were, the more they would like the flavor of coconut. They did not like the flavor of maple. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Well, maybe sheep just love coconut. I mean, who doesn't love coconut? But in another pen, he took another group of sheep and he switched it. This time, when he drenched their stomachs with phosphorus, they had the maple flavored feed and those sheep developed a liking for maple. Now what, you know, we know sheep don't know what phosphorus is. They don't know what nutrients are. They don't know what vitamins are. All they know is this is what I like. And what they liked at that moment, at that time of deficiency, was the flavor that brought them the nutrient they need. And the idea is that flavor is the way the body remembers and knows where to find nutrients out there in nature. And I think that's you know part of the reason why people say, okay, so you should really only eat when you're hungry. You should listen to your cravings. You should, you know, eat what it is that you crave. And, you know, when I, you know, I have a two-year-old at home and when he doesn't want to eat all the good stuff I put in front of him, my pediatrician says, don't worry, just, you know, offer it to him and eventually he'll figure out what it is that he needs and so forth. But it's really frightening <laughs> when, you know, I offer him something that's not so nutritious and he'll eat a lot of it. Or, you know, if I followed my own cravings, I'd be eating donuts every day. Would, so, would you really? You know, would you eat that many donuts? 
I don't know. Well, I, I think so. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so isn't that partly what the whole um, obesity epidemic is, is, you know, that a lot of the research is suggesting that people who are obese tend to have stronger cravings for food that is not good for them. And, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, they tend to eat a lot more. It's not that they have more willpower or less willpower. I mean, they actually have more willpower often because, you know, their their cravings are are, are higher. Is, is that not not yeah, no, no, that definitely is part of it. Um, and I think that's really interesting. But w- one thing that's really interesting to note, first of all, is that, like you say, this system seems to be on some level still happening with humans. And there's some good evidence for it. One of the most interesting is that when British sailors had scurvy, long before they had any idea what caused scurvy, they would experience cravings for fruit and vegetables. This is back when they thought that scurvy was caused by fog or by the waves. What they knew is that they really wanted to eat fruits and vegetables, even though they didn't know that that was the cure. Um, but then, yeah, great question. Well, what about, you know, food addicts and so forth who who binge on things like donuts or soda when they know and everyone knows they shouldn't do it? Um, what is really interesting is if you think of flavor as the system by which our body remembers and finds nutrients, what we need to do is look at how that has changed. Since the 1960s, when when we've basically all of us has start have started eating more, what's changed? F- flavor has changed incredibly. The the flavor of the foods we eat are very different from the flavors 50 years ago, and this is in two ways. The first is that all the whole foods that we grow are getting blander and blander. We know this every time we slice into a supermarket tomato or a supermarket strawberry or chicken. It tastes like cardboard. We all know it. We all complain about it. It's frustrating. Why can't you get a tomato that tastes like a tomato? But the other thing that's changed profoundly, and this is a technological innovation, is that we can make flavor now. Um, For most of human history, flavor was tied to the thing that you were eating. So if you wanted to experience the flavor of orange, you had to eat an orange. If you want to experience the flavor of carrot or roast chicken, you had to eat a carrot or roast chicken. That all changed in the mid-1950s with the... uh, with a device called the gas chromatograph, which let scientists unlock the flavor inside any food. We we now have the ability, because flavor compounds exist in minuscule, minuscule amounts, we now had the ability to capture these things and then analyze them. And it wasn't soon after we analyzed them that we started making them and we started putting them in food. And this has given rise to the flavor industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry that adds flavorings to so much of the food we eat. So that is a core difference that the world of 100 years ago or the world that sheep live in or, or chimpanzees in the forest, flavor is directly related to a food. Whereas we have created a world where we can manipulate flavors and make food taste like whatever we want. I mean, it does sound compelling to me that I don't think I actually crave, you know, fat per se, but I do crave, say, a particular flavor of potato chips or, you know, some other kind of food that's highly fattening, but also has a flavor. And so I guess my my question is, you know, what is this? How do we learn? Is it is it a learned thing where we're associating a flavor with a particular nutrient? Um, to what extent is it innate? You know, like, uh, uh, to what extent does a baby have preferences for certain flavors? The thinking right now is that babies are born, well, I don't want to say entirely a blank slate, because um, there's really good research to indicate that the flavors babies are exposed to in the womb actually has 
an effect on their food preferences, which is to say the food they like versus the food they don't like when they get to be older. But I would liken flavor to language in, in the sense that we're born with the kind of brain apparatus for this stuff to work, but it's it's what you're exposed to that makes the ultimate, you know, what determines it. So, you know, if you're born in China, you might grow up speaking Cantonese or Mandarin. Your palate is also a function of your experiences. And is there any evidence that some people's palates are predisposed towards an, an, a sort of an addiction to food because of the way that they process flavor? Or are these separable? Well, there's know, a there's definitely a genetic uh, component to obesity and food addiction, but that is realized in a particular environment. So, so it's interesting to think our genetics haven't really changed since the 1950s. There's been immigration and so forth. But the real change has been in the food environment. And flavor is one of the big changes. Um, flavor technology literally did not exist decades ago, the way it exists now. Um, if you look, what's really interesting to me is the um, the brain uh, research on food addiction. If When you put food addicts, for example, in an fMRI, which is one of those it's like MRI machines, which is like a movie. You can watch the, the brain transformations happening, or the brain changes happening in real time. Well, what you're actually watching is, um, you know, blood flow, and then you do a bunch of statistics. and Yeah, exactly. You know. But they can, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not just one snapshot. It, um, what, yeah, what's really can... interesting is that most people, I guess the bias that we have um, about food addiction is that we think these people, they just like food too much. They, it's just so delicious, they can't control themselves. But what's very interesting is that when you look at the brain of a food addict versus a healthy eater, it's not that they get more satisfaction from food. Very often they get less. What is different is that their craving for food, their desire, they, they have a real spike in desire and their relationship between desire and satisfaction is really out of proportion. Their, their desire is really heightened. What's so interesting to think about flavor is that's the the cue to eat. If you look in, if you look in animal studies, you can get animals to eat a food they wouldn't eat by putting flavor on it. That food ultimately doesn't deliver what they might have been expecting the flavor to deliver, but it does cause the behavior. It's like um, you might almost say it's like the uh, the chemical desire in a way. You're imprinting desire on something. Yeah, and this this really does tie back to some of the stuff we talked about with Tracy Mann, where you know it's really not about people who are obese not having enough willpower to reject these foods is that, you know, there, there's there's something fundamentally different, perhaps, in the way in which they are um, anticipating or, or craving the food. But then it also makes me wonder how this addiction or even sort of a general continuum of variability in the population develops. And is there a danger? I mean, it, it sounds like if we have the problem where our food is bland, but we can add flavor you know, why can't we just have, you know, a better version of Soylent? Why can't we just make, you know, food that maybe is more nutritious to us or at least less, you know, harmful for us and just make it more flavorful and therefore we would eat it? Is it, is it, is that, is it that easy or I mean, is there still? No, that's a, a really a interesting variable? question. And that's something I've thought about a lot. So I'll, I'll give you the long answer. There was a really interesting study in the journal Science a few years ago that looked at the flavors in tomatoes that we love. Uh, there's about almost 400 flavor compounds in tomatoes, but it turns out humans just ignore the vast majority. We, we can sense many of them, but we just sort of tune them out. There's 20 flavor compounds in tomatoes that really drive 
uh, our preference for tomatoes. If those flavors are there, we love the tomato. If they're not there, we think, oh my God, what a bland tomato. Every single one of those 20 essential flavor compounds in tomatoes is synthesized from an, an essential nutrient. So there's, there's two things about this. The first is that this is excellent evidence that this kind of nutritional wisdom of the palate exists in humans, that we like tomatoes because of the good stuff in tomatoes, amino acids, omega-3s, carotenoids. But there's another lesson here, which is that the flavors in tomato, there's an integrity with the nutrients. So that you you know you could create this thrilling tomato flavor and put it in you know in some other food, but the reason that a tomato works is because there's this this integrity that the flavor leads you to those nutrients. So if all you do is create flavorings and try to put them in healthy food, but you don't have this this relationship between the flavor you're eating and the nutrients inside, you're you're breaking that relationship. So that's why I don't think is it's as simple as just trying to to create you know a better tasting health bar or something. Uh-huh. So, you know, you think over time your body would reset its flavor palette um, or, you know, because that's again, I think we're, we're, we're fighting against many, many thousands of years of evolution. <laughs> it, no, I mean, I think you confuse it is what ends up happening. I mean, the other problem with that is, again, this arrogant idea that we know what's nutritious we don't. We like. There's um, a great deal of biochemical individuality, which is to say, what you might need today is not what I need. Or talking about your two-year-old, I got kids too. A lot of parents rip their hair out because they think their kids should be eating red peppers and broccoli, and they want to eat hot dogs. But one of the things we forget is that kids' bodies are very different than our own. They have a really high energy need because they're growing and they're incredibly active. They sprint everywhere. But the other thing is that growing bodies are very sensitive to toxins. So um, some scientists theorize one of the reasons little kids don't like foods like broccoli is because they're more sensitive to toxins than grown bodies are. So I'm a classic case. I grew up hating broccoli. I now love broccoli. Um, so it's not just as simple as saying, you should eat this and I'm going to flavor it in such a way that you can't resist it because nutrition is more complex than that. And I don't know if you've been following the uh, current findings in the microbiome literature that suggest that, in fact, people have different, you know, colonies of bacteria in their gut. And that in some cases, the diets that nutritionists recommend should be tied to these different microbiota. What do you think about that work? I think it's really interesting. The, the microbiome is, is an unfolding area with a lot going on. And I, the reason I think it's interesting is because this is another way we're like animals. Um, for a long time, a lot of that goat and sheep research was ignored because people said, oh, well, they're so different than us. They're ruminants. They've got all these bacteria living in their gut. We're finding more and more we are exactly the same. Um, but what's also interesting, like you said, is the idea of individuality, that we're not we shouldn't all just run around drinking Soylent because it's, quote, healthy. Um, we're all different and we're even different from ourselves in the sense that, you know, the way you are at 35 is different than you are at 25 or 15 or 5. Yeah. So in some ways, just the premise behind Soylent in this framework it seems like it just, yeah, it, if the idea is to feed the entire world with one solution, with one sort of, you know, chemical solution, that, that that's not necessarily going to work unless we are all, you know, we all somehow 
create the same microbiome and the same nutritional yeah, needs. No, it's I think it's a really limited view of nutrition and also of, of like who and what we are. Um, this guy I talked about it in Utah, uh, Fred Provenza, he also did a great study with calves where in one pen, he had the total mixed ration, which is put together by a PhD ruminant nutritionist, someone who knows more about what these critters, quote, need than anyone else. And then in the other pen, he just had food, like rolled oats, hay, alfalfa, the kind of stuff that sheep eat, or, or sorry, calves. And the calves in the free choice pen, which is to say the ones that got to decide what they could eat, they did a better job of meeting their own nutritional needs than the ones that ate this, you know, sort of super diet created by someone with a PhD. I mean, it almost suggests that the buffet is the way to go. And yet, if you go to Vegas, <laughs> uh, you know, I think a lot of people do a lot of overeating in the buffet kind of scenario um, because we have this overabundance of food. And do you think that one of the reasons that we tend to overeat in those situations is, you know, simply we're not paying attention to how much we're eating and we're distracted and so forth? Or is it that the food is bland? Um, what do you think is the relationship between food choice and flavor? Well, I think it's it's a complicated one. I mean, the Vegas buffet is not what I would recommend for anyone or for their two-year-old. But I, but I do think the buffet idea is good in the sense that, especially when it comes to kids, giving them a choice is a really good idea. I've got three kids and it's funny, my son, who was a sworn enemy of broccoli, totally surprised me and has now come, come around on broccoli. He says he loves it and he does. I mean, he eats it. So that's illustrative of how you can change your preferences. But I would also say those people sort of lined up at the Vegas buffet are, I don't want to say they're far gone, but they are, what's really important are the foods you're exposed to your entire life. So let's compare that buffet in Las Vegas, let's say to a restaurant in a place like Japan or Italy, where people are making very different food choices. And they're not doing it, in my experience, in Italy or Japan, because they're on a diet. They like different foods than the people at the Las Vegas buffet. So that is the question is, how do you get people to like different foods? And that to some degree takes a lifetime of work. So is that is there any research showing that there are certain critical periods in a person's life when they need to be exposed to food? Or is it just a kind of a habit forming thing? I think the research is pointing that there are formative years that are important, but I think, I, I, that said, I don't think all hope is lost. I do think just like the same way I learned I didn't say I, I say I learned to love broccoli. It wasn't that simple. I didn't like force myself. I just came to really like it over time. Uh, I think the palate changes over the course of your, of an entire life. But I think those those um those early years are important. So let's talk about how that palate is developed and sort of the the kind of neuroanatomy behind it. How is it that we experience flavor? Um, you experience it in two ways. Um, it's a combination of taste and smell. Uh, the taste part we all know, you've got taste buds on your tongue and other parts of your mouth, and they, they sense the basic tastes, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami, which is this Japanese word that means, you know, savory deliciousness. Um, that's what your tongue does. Even more important from a complexity point of view is your nose. This seems really counterintuitive because, you know, we taste food in our mouths. What the heck is my nose doing? But what happens when you eat food is that flavor molecules, like essentially aroma, wafts up the back of your throat through and through that hole that connects your throat to your nose and enters your nasal cavity and stimulates your olfactory receptors, your smell receptors. So you're actually smelling while you're eating. It's called retronasal 
olfaction. And it's even a more powerful form of smelling than when you sniff through your nostrils. And that is where so much of the complexity, uh, and you might say the identity of your food comes from. If, if you didn't smell, an apple or an orange would taste um, a little sour and tart and sweet. But it's the aroma that gives it that character. It's the aroma that will make you eat a gala and say, oh, this tastes different from a Red Delicious, for example. There's, there's just an incredible amount of information in, in our noses. Uh, I mean, the nose is really a miracle of, of engineering in terms of what it can do and how quickly it works. You know, we have, I talked earlier about the gas chromatograph. The gas chromatograph is getting pretty good at sensing what chemicals the nose can sense, but it takes hours. We smell things instantly. And that's something that, you know, are, are there periods in our life when we, our, our smell ability is better? I mean, I certainly when I was pregnant, I felt like I could <laughs> smell a lot more. Um, but, but what probably your nose probably wasn't any more sensitive. What but your your brain was more sensitive to the information because of because the fact that you were pregnant. So this is that's a really interesting point, because um, there's, you know, a lot of scientists think that one of the reasons pregnant women are so hostile to certain flavors is because they are more on guard for toxins because they're carrying a fetus, which is growing, and growing bodies are more susceptible to toxins, which is why, um, you know, when pregnant women smoke, they generally are fine, but the, but the toxins in the cigarette smoke are so damaging to a fetus. Right. And that also explains, of course, why when you have a cold, things taste very different. Um, and it gets to one of sort of my favorite sets of studies, which is about how we actually associate aromas with tastes, depending on our experience. So, for example, we associate things um, that we smell with particular tastes. Like, for example, if you are from parts of, um, you know, Eastern Asia, you might have a different relationship with certain spices in terms of how you think they taste than, say, if you are uh, mainly exposed to Western food. And, you know, the example I, I like is vanilla, you know, here in the U.S. and particular, vanilla is associated with sweetness. And, you know, the, the aroma itself isn't sweet. But the fact is, is that we often taste it with a, you know, in a sweet beverage or in cakes and cookies and so forth. And so it enhances the sweetness of whatever it is that we're eating, which is a learned association. Is that is that true? The Well, I don't know that much about the experience of vanilla in Asia, but as far as it being a learned association, yes. But, I, you know, vanilla is a really complex one because I haven't found anyone who can explain why we love vanilla. My own theory is that it's a milk imitator. Um, it's often uh, we often use it in desserts, milky, creamy desserts. Um, but they also use some of those flavors in the livestock industry when they want to get piglets to eat pig feed because they wean them like super, super early. And they use those dessert-like flavors, things like butterscotch and so forth, because they tend to be milk imitators. So anyway, I was at a restaurant and I got, it was a kind of a restaurant where chefs are encouraged to experiment. And I got a bizarre dish that, uh, of potatoes. And I remember smelling it. And I said, oh, is there vanilla on this? And they said, no, but there's buttermilk there's a like buttermilk powder on it and it really reminded me of vanilla so anyway this is my own theory but i think there is something going on with vanilla and milk and so you know as we're sort of developing these palaces as we grow up and now we have this 
synthesized flavor in so much of our food, right? I mean, even in your book, you talk about how you can say that something is flavored naturally, but that doesn't mean that it comes. Like if you have a naturally flavored grape juice, that doesn't mean that it actually comes from grapes, the natural flavor, just that it's not a synthetic compound entirely. You can actually get flavor compounds from yeasts that... Uh, sorry, genetically engineered yeasts and call them natural flavors. Um, it's amazing what we allow to be called natural flavors, but there's there's definitely nothing natural about them. Right. So is there any danger now that we have this ability to synthesize flavors that really, you know, hit us hard, <laughs> like the Dorito, uh, you know, flavor that is going to change the way that we experience food. Yeah, for, it already has. Um, you know, you were talking earlier that you don't you don't have a craving for fat or, 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 you know, potato chips in general. You have a craving for a particular flavor. That's what we've done. The reason I called the book The Dorito Effect is because the very first Doritos were just salted tortilla chips and they, they kind of bombed. They, they didn't sell well because no one really wanted to eat them. It wasn't until they added flavorings that they went from being something no one wanted to eat to something that literally people could not stop eating. And that is such an excellent illustration of the power of flavor chemicals to literally get us to eat food. Um, so we already have changed the way we experience food and we've created chemical incentives that get us to eat food that normally we just wouldn't want to eat. So looking forward, what do you think is the solution? for our obesity pandemic? Uh, two things. Uh, one is that it, for those of us who are conscious eaters, have a look at where the flavor is coming from in the food you eat. There's an awful lot of foods out there. Uh, we find these chemicals in more than just junk food. It's not just potato chips. It's not just soft drinks. They're in things like yogurt. They're in soy milk. They're in pasta sauces. Like they are everywhere. So be aware of where the flavor comes from. If you see the words artificial or natural flavor, you know that this product was literally engineered by a flavorist who wanted to create that experience of deliciousness. So we should all know that that's happening. But even more important, we have known, you know, as much as we might want to argue about uh, what's healthy and what's not, most people, I haven't found a single nutritionist with this who disagrees with the idea that we should eat more fruits and vegetables. Well, if we want to eat more fruits and vegetables, shouldn't they taste delicious? Why are we leaching the flavor from the very foods that we know are good for us? So one of the things we need to do is get whole foods to taste good again. Now, some of us are already doing this because we go to things like farmer's markets. A lot of people have already realized, wow, this stuff just tastes a lot better. Um, but we could be doing an even better job of it. Yeah. And hopefully, do you think that that's a place where genetic engineering can come in? Or do you think we really need to, is there some other way that we can get back to these great tasting foods? It's already happening. Um, in fact, there's a tomato that was developed at the University of Florida, which was bred for flavor. Um, it was an interesting experiment where the scientist crossed the most flavorful heirloom. He's actually the guy who was one of the co-authors on that science paper I mentioned earlier. He crossed the most flavorful heirloom tomato he'd ever grown with a commercial tomato. Uh, he was kind of hoping for a compromise, a tomato that tasted decent, but also had a good shelf life and also was disease resistant and had a good yield. He ended up getting like a wonder tomato. It is incredibly productive. It's got a superb shelf life. It is superbly disease resistant. But the best news of all is that it is so delicious, it is indistinguishable from its heirloom parent. So this tells us we can get flavor back into whole foods, and they can be delicious and nourishing again. 
Well, I want to remind our listeners that Mark Schatzker's new book, The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor, is now available at fine booksellers everywhere. Mark Schatzker, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Wow, I have to say that really resonated with me, especially the line about never really being satisfied with food. I feel that quite often, especially when I go out after that burger or I go out after that, you know, you know, taste of ice cream. Uh, it really rung is true. And, you know, it's funny. It's not now it's like if I if I eat a tomato that is delicious, it's it's like an event. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm so used to eating really bland produce a lot of the time and, and having to add flavor to it. I have this uh, bacon smoked sea salt that I go through <laughs> very, very quickly because it seems like most of the things I eat could just be better with that. Yeah. And this wasn't so much like the advocation for, oh, no science in our food system, but I definitely rung the the flavor being a window into our brain. The part that really was funny for me was Soylent. I have so many friends that drink whatever the hell that is. It, do you know people that, that drink this stuff? Yeah, I'm pretty sure if my husband listens to this episode, I'm going to get an earful because um, he has been known to partake in the Soylent. And uh, so that's how I've tasted it. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I think it's a, I, I think it's really interesting. I mean, on the one hand, he, he tells me about, or he sends me all these links to all this interesting information about why it's so great and why it's so different and, and everything. And then the, on the other hand, I read all of this new literature about how our microbiome is different and that makes how we digest food and how we even taste food potentially different and how do genes interact with that. So the idea that we could find a single recipe for nutrition for every single person, you know, just seems like it's not that's not where the science of food is going. Um, but wouldn't that be great if if that was the case? So as somebody that hasn't really tried Soylent, how does it taste? It tastes a little bit like, um, like, like drinking dough. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't taste that doesn't sound very good, but actually the reason it's it's just like a base, uh, so you can add whatever flavoring you want to it. Um, so you know you can add chocolate or you can add vanilla or you can add peanut butter or whatever you want, and it'll taste like that thing plus a little bit of a doughy substance. But it's not as chalky as some of the meal supplements. Like I can't stand that kind of chalkiness. Um, so I feel like Soylent has done a really good job of figuring out how to get the texture right. And of course, how you prepare it makes a big difference. It's just powder. So really, it's up to the person who's preparing it um, to figure out how they want it to taste. I can't imagine switching to that. Like in, enjoying food, especially the flavors of food, is like one of those pure joys I have left in my life. Uh, and after listening to Tracy Mann about sort of, you know, hacking how our diet in some way uh, by not using diets uh, and now combined now with the Dorito effect, I have to do some rethinking about how I eat. Did you walk away from this interview feeling the same way? Yeah. And you know what it made me do? Uh, there are often times when I feel like I just need to eat and I need to finish my plate, even if it's not tasting that great. And in the last week, I've sort of noticed that I've stopped doing that. If I'm really not enjoying every bite, I just kind of put it away. And so we'll see if that's a lasting change. And if it's one that, you know, is does does positive things to my waistline, uh, you know, I'll have to get back to you about that in the new year. Well, I'm going to be thinking about flavor as we enter my holiday weight 
um, <laughs> season. I'll call it that. <laughs> So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and our anonymous donors. This episode is sponsored by Zevia. Zevia is the zero-calorie, naturally sweetened soda that's clearly different. It has no sugar and no calories, but it is still somehow really delicious. Zevia is available in 15 different flavors like cream soda, black cherry, cola, ginger ale, or even tonic water. Always zero calories, Zevia makes amazing guilt-free cocktails, perfect for the holidays, whiskey and ginger, gin and tonic, and so many more. Plus, Zevia is giving away thousands of free six-packs. To check it out, go to zevia.com slash podcast. That's Z-E-V-I-A.com slash podcast. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own favorite recipes full of flavor, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by artificial ingredient Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, The Huffington Post, Mother Jones, Medium, City Lab, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.